Hello and welcome to the season four finale of the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Eric Garcetti is the United States ambassador to India, having been nominated to the post this spring by President Biden, following a nearly 10-year run as the 42nd mayor of Los Angeles. In this episode, Ambassador Garcetti joins us from Delhi, India, to tell his story. From growing up in Encino, to finding a passion for the performing arts at Harvard School, before studying international affairs at Columbia and at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Mayor Garcetti also describes what drew him to public service. The child of Mexican and Jewish parents, Eric describes himself as, quote, a bridge builder, end quote, with a passion and facility for bringing distinct groups of citizens together, finding common ground and working toward a better future, while acknowledging the inevitable disappointments and daily criticisms that accompany elected life. Ambassador Garcetti also explains his lifelong fascination with India, the world's most populous country, a story that began in childhood with parents who encouraged Eric to see the world, to foster a curiosity about the lives of others, and then identify ways to serve. With appreciation to the former mayor for his time, and to you for listening along to a fourth season of this series. This is The Supporting Cast. Ambassador Eric Garcetti, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thank you. Great to be with you, Eli. Great to be with you as well. And I guess I should start. I refer to you as Ambassador Garcetti. You are also technically, I guess, Mayor Garcetti because you retain the title after you end your term. What What should people call you if they if they see you on the street? If you see me on the street, <laughs> call me Eric. A long time ago, okay. I learned from Warren Christopher, who was always call me Chris. But of course, everybody would say, okay, Mr. Secretary, that your title is just something that is your job. It's not your identity. So I remember being with my daughter at her elementary school and somebody ran up and said, you're the mayor, aren't you? And I said, no, being mayor is my job, but I'm Maya's daddy. So you can call me Maya's daddy or Eric. Okay, Maya's daddy it is. Great, uh, Ambassador Garcetti. <laughs> but of course, after you finish your ambassadorship, you would go back to, I guess you, you do retain the title of mayor long after you are mayor. I Correct. suppose so, and ambassadors always call themselves ambassadors. I, I kind of I see. try to fight against those things in life where people make you something forever. I loved 10 years of serving as mayor. Um, yeah. I'm loving being ambassador. But yeah, just, just call me dude. <laughs> Sounds good. So I first, I want to start with the present. We are talking from very far away. You were in India right now. I am in Los Angeles. First, I want to start with today. Where are you in the world, I guess specifically, and how are you? So I'm really great. I'm about as far away as you can get time zone-wise from Los Angeles, at least for half the year, because Daylight Savings syncs it up. You can just convert AM to PM and add a half hour to LA time. And that's what time it is in New Delhi. In fact, all of India. India has one time zone. So, you know, it's about as far away as you can get. When you're sleeping, I'm usually awake. When I'm sleeping, you're usually awake. But it was a great, great day. It's very hot here. Um, the summer is a pretty brutal in New Delhi. But it was a typical day where a million things come at you in every direction. Because as ambassador, I'm leading the mission that traditionally is the largest, tied maybe for the top three right now with Mexico and China, of all of our embassies and consulate missions together. So nearly 3,000 people who work across not just the embassy here, but for consular locations throughout India on everything from international development to defense and security, to economics and trade, to people-to-people -people ties and education. It's basically an entire world packed into a single entity interacting with another entire world called India, now the most populous country in the world. So today, I'm trying to think, I had to record a, a song. Uh, it's World Music Day coming up. They know I play the piano. So Nick Jonas did a um, song with King, an Indian singer, and they asked me to play like a portion of that for the video. 
I met with the National Security Advisor of India. I was able to welcome some American guests from U.S. government that were here, got my briefings, talked to folks in Calcutta who are in our uh, mission there. Just a little bit of everything, um, which is really exciting to me. I'm a person who likes a lot of variety uh, and likes to make an impact. So every single day is like that here. And so what drew you to the role? I assume the variety and all the things you're talking about were interesting to you. I imagine working on the international stage as opposed to working civically here in Los Angeles. But, you know, of all the places in the world and of all the things to do kind of after being mayor of L.A., why India? Well, I think the honest answer is longer than you might have anticipated. Um, with a lot of other things, I can give you a, a simple one. But I think there's certain things that have drawn me to India my entire life, certain things that have drawn me to public service my entire life and certain things that conspired to bring me to this job in, in, yeah. in India. Let me start with the first one. My parents actually both LA natives and their parents were basically LA natives too. My, I think most recent immigrant to LA was my grandfather who was born in Mexico and came here when he was just one year old in the Mexican revolution. We kind of have a mother and a father, my sister and I, who grew up on opposite sides of the track, my dad in South LA, my mom in West LA, but they met in Pan Am Airlines when they had both graduated from um, university and got married six weeks after the first date and raised us with this ethic of if you had an extra penny you didn't put into the house or into a fancier car you went and you traveled the world that the world was kind of there to see that's probably the best gift you can give a child when I look back on it who cares what car you drove in or how big the house was you remember the experiences you had and how they broaden your cultural horizon so when I was 14, they took me and my sister, then 16, to India for the first time. Wow. Um, cut to five years later when I'm in college my first year, and a housing lottery gives you a random roommate. It was a, somebody named Jared Clark. And Jared said, hey, I have a father who just became uh, the U.S. ambassador to India, of all things. Um, wow. <laughs> and so I, he said, would you like to go to India? And I said to him, oh my gosh, you didn't know this, but I love India. Um, I went there, you know, five years ago as a teenager. And so suddenly I was on a plane, came here and stayed in the ambassador's residence in New Delhi as a 19-year-old. Uh, and is it the same residence that you are now? Funnily enough, it's actually not because we're building a new embassy and I'm going to be the only ambassador, I think, who never lives in that residence because uh, we're building okay. a new embassy in the coming years. And so the house is in fine shape, but it's wrapped and surrounded by construction. So I'm in a, a beautiful home, actually, in a neighborhood of New Delhi, which in some ways is better than living on the compound because I'm in a city by a beautiful park close to you know, stores and everyday people. But I came back from that experience and started studying Hindi and Urdu, the languages of, two of the languages of India. I was going to live my junior abroad here, but got elected to student government, so I didn't. So anyway, I came back to India probably once a decade. So that's my India piece. Government service we'll get into, and I think I, I got here partially because I've been drawn to a life committed to public service. Went got school at Columbia, my international affairs master's, kind of always thought I'd do work in the international realm, but took 21 years doing local work, which in LA is quite international. When the president yeah. then, who I was very close to and had uh, chaired his campaign and helped chair his uh, vice presidential search and inauguration, called one day and said, hey, I need you to consider a job. He had called before when I couldn't take that job as in the midst of the pandemic. And I, I didn't feel good about leaving LA as people were dying in the hospitals. And I wanted to kind of finish as much of this as I could. And he said, uh, ultimately, after we talked a couple of times, I need you to, to take on one of the biggest jobs in government, which is to be ambassador to this big country. And um, it's one of the most critical relationships we have. Would you consider it? And my heart, which had already been touched so deeply by India, but I'd kind of given up on the dream of going there, suddenly uh, kind of got reignited. And now here I am. So you mentioned you spent 10 years as mayor of Los Angeles, uh, the city that is your home. It's been now six months since you were mayor. I wonder if you've had time, especially living across the world, to reflect it all over those 10 years. And I'd love to talk broadly. Kind of first, what are the things you're most proud of from those 10 years? What are the things when you look back, it's such a difficult job. Yeah. You take your hits <laughs> publicly, of course, in a job like that often. Yeah. What are the things you look back at and go, gosh, I... 
I was able to to do good work there. I made a difference. You know, it's it's funny, Eli. The work of serving at the local level. You know, our President Biden jokes that he got out of local government because you actually have to do something. <laughs> and, he, and then then you laugh and he's like, "No, I ain't, I ain't kidding. We get to legislate and do this, and it's two steps removed. It's the most immediate and visceral form of democracy that there is." And it really appealed to me. I never thought I'd, uh, I probably didn't, couldn't name when I was at Harvard High School who my city council member was growing up, like many people can't around the country, or who your school board member is. Uh, a lot of people think I grew up with politics because my dad did run for office and became district attorney, but that was after I was done with college. So I grew up a very anonymous kind of life in, in LA as a kid. So I don't really think of things that I'm proud of. I think things that I'm satisfied of having had the opportunity to work on. But it might be as small as my second to last day, I think, as mayor. I took a lot of uh, transit in L.A. and I was on the bus, boarded the, the bus right off of Van Nuys Boulevard. The artist formerly known as the Orange Line, the Rapid Bus. Uh, <laughs> and a woman across from me uh, said, Mayor, it's me. And I realized it was a woman I had met in her new apartment in South L.A., she had come out of about uh, 12 years on and off of homelessness, and we had built uh, a new, beautiful, permanent supportive housing place, and she had given me that tour and told me all about her kids who she was reunited with, and we had spent a morning together, and then here we were six months later. And it's moments like that, or when I'm on a hike and people come up and say, you know, it was your nightly address during the pandemic that got me through that all. Thank you. It's the small things, um, as much as you know, winning the Olympics, finally redoing the airport and bring up people mover, passing Measure M, which will give us 15 new transit lines, um, the Green New Deal, and getting us to 100% renewable energy. There, there are these big mega things, ending the 100-year water fight with Owens Valley. Sometimes you're, you're surprised by how big the things are you get to work on. But to me, the ones that really last with me are the people, the stories, those individuals whose lives you changed, maybe even a kid who said, you stopped, took a picture with me, I've grown up and I never forgot that. And now it changed the direction of my life because I think, you know, it's like that old kind of Jewish saying that if you if you can heal one person, you heal the world. If you help one person, you can help the world. To me, the longer I do this, the more that's what sticks with me. You mentioned that, that being mayor is the most visceral form of government or use that quote. There's sort of a duality in being a mayor that, as I understand it, you would understand it a million times better than I would. This notion that you're so close to the impact uh, that you're making in the city. But at the same time, there's in Los Angeles, the mayor has limited authority, right? The the city council has a great amount of authority. The board of education is is separate from you, for example. Did you find the duality of that frustrating at times? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's... Um... It's the toughest job you can ever have. And when people, young people come to me sometimes saying, hey, I'm thinking of running for office. And the advice I usually give back to them was something I learned from an acting coach. I did a lot of theater at Harvard. I continued that at school and university and even in grad school when I lived in England. And I thought I might want to become an actor. It might have been in a master class actually in England with Sir John Gielgud, the legendary actor. I think he's the one who said it. He said, only act if you can't not. In other words, it's such a crazy thing to try to become an actor. You think you have talent, you're probably not talented. You think you can, even with talent, if you have it, you can make it in one in a thousand, you know, make it. And then one in a million make it as a star, which is what everybody thinks they're going to be. So unless you can't not act, do anything else. And I kind of feel the same way about politics as a principle. I mean, I think mm -hmm. it's really great to serve elected officials to have a life of public service. There's so many ways you can be a chief of staff or a staffer, or you can be a powerful, appointed person inside government. But to be that tip of the spear every single day, especially at the local level, and especially in a country where politics has become such a full contact sport, such a tribal, visceral thing to do, it's not rational. It really isn't. I mean, I'm surprised I got through, you know, 21 years of it. It takes its toll. You have immense personal sacrifices, the amount of time you can spend with friends, uh, the long, long hours. Even here as ambassador, they're like, are we working you too hard? I'm like, no. I mean, and I'm still working, you know, 15 hour days, but I actually get a day off now and again, which is something I never had as mayor. So that back and forth of, you know, are you going to grow as a person? You're not going to. 
because you're going to be serving? Are you going to take slings and arrows? Are people going to yell at you because you embody something? Maybe it's personal, but often it's not. You just are mm-hmm. that thing that they hate isn't working. And it's a tough time to do it. Social media has made nine out of 10 people cruel. You know, you look at comments and it's like one out of 10 tries to be nice. They get chased away. But in real life, you know, when I go on a hike in Griffith Park, it's not even nine out of 10, it's 10 out of 10 people who come up and say something nice, which is this strange world where it's almost like when nobody's looking, you can be a complete jerk. In person, we have to figure out a way to get along with each other. I'm sure people walk by saying, oh, I I hated that guy or he was a bad mayor, but they don't go out of their way to say it. A metaphor is I had a friend who recently, she's actually a local reporter, was driving in LA and I guess might have inadvertently cut somebody off. And it was a complete road rage where the guy was like, F you and honking and going back. And she was like fearing for her own life, but she's an investigative reporter. So she took the license plate down, did her research, and an hour later called him at home and said, hey, this is X, her name, from Fox News. And I'm, I'm doing a little story about um, road rage. And he's like, yeah. And my understanding is you just had this incident on PCH in Malibu. And, and he kind of paused and she's like, actually, I was in that other car. And he just wow. kind of said, hey, I'm so sorry. It get cut off all the time. And I just lost my temper. I was worried I was going to get in an accident. I was totally wrong. If you want to do the story, fine. They wound up becoming very friendly. And wow. when she told me that story, I thought road rage happens when you have a car around you, just like social media happens when you have the anonymity of that. But nobody walks in New York and you bump into somebody and they go, hey, F you, get out of the way, blah, blah, blah. You know, because you have to deal with a person who's directly there. And in politics, we have to figure out some way to kind of get out of the car, get out of our kind of social media shell, and just figure out a way to talk to each other again. And and that can make the job very tough. I wouldn't give away even my toughest days, but took a toll on me, took a toll on my family. And it's, as I said, where I started, it's not a rational thing to choose to do, but I'm glad there's still really good people who are choosing to do it. And Los Angeles is a car city, despite, <laughs> you know, Measure M and uh, all the, the public transit and, yep. and hopefully better transit to LAX yep. someday. We're, we're all waiting patiently for that. What were the most difficult times, I guess, of those 10 years? Can you think back to a moment where not just the, I guess, the, yeah. the public backlash, I mean, that can be part of it, but something that you really hoped hoped to accomplish, as you said, uh, trying to be an actor, trying to be a politician, trying mm-hmm. to achieve things often ends in failure, yeah. uh, not always, but but sometimes. What were those times for you? What were the frustrations? Well, I think the the good moments and the things you're able to accomplish far outweigh the others, but also being in politics is learning to live with daily failure and unhappiness. You know, there's. I'm not the kind of person, some people are really good, I'm going to do two things or one thing and I'm going to stick to that, I'm going to keep saying that thing over and over. But running a city requires you to do 10,000 things. And if you're really trying to help the city, you're going to think through housing policy and environmental policy and getting the port to work better. The seven most feared words in LA, can you pick me up at LAX, was my obsession. (laughs) So like, let's finally get public transit there while you're trying to increase the quality of the streets and add more bike lanes and, you know, do everything. So there's always things you fall short. We don't have enough bike lanes in Los Angeles. We, even though I tripled the pace of housing, we need to double it again. Uh, homelessness is the greatest frustration to work on for anybody, I think, in yeah. urban America right now, especially when you're a mayor without the, the tools for mental health care or you inherit 30 years of all of us not building housing because we thought that would stop traffic in L.A. And it really pushed people further and further down. And in good economic times, it actually results in people becoming unhoused. So, you know, it's not one thing. I would say the most frustrating thing is, I remember when I first got elected to the city council, Jackie Goldberg, first open lesbian to serve on the city council, kind of legendary uh, Students for a Democratic Society person from Berkeley, far left. I asked her, what's the toughest part of the job? And it, it just echoes in my head. She's like, it's going to be the people who you're close to, kind of politically, thinking that you've sold out or not done enough. Because I think when you're an activist Mm. or on the outside in, you can be 100% correct. You can envision a world in which you somehow get 100% of what you want. And the way we write American history is when there's clear zero and 100%. Either we have slavery or we end it. When most public policy things are not like, do women get to vote? Should there be marriage equality? They're usually like, well, how much housing is right? And well, in this budget of finance, 
what do we put into mental health versus paving the street versus uh, making sure that there's enough housing, the tough decisions in which compromise is baked into the system. It's necessary, not a bad thing. But a lot of people will say, hey, you didn't go far enough. I had people who protested you know, about the, the work that we were doing to reform LAPD, that it wasn't going far enough, that too many people were still the victims of police brutality or racist stops and things like that. And I thought we actually did some really, really important work. We were the first big city in America to put body cams, which has changed policing on our police officers. And we did that first by raising money. Steve Soboroff, uh, um, who was a commissioner, helped raise that. And then I put it fully in the budget. Um, we worked on that and it changed everything. But you come to realize that there is the street and then there is the city hall. And we need to train people more how to be in both places. I would never take away the street. I've been on the street. I've been a protester. I'll be there again, I'm sure. But you have to know once you get the attention of people in power, you have to know how to cross over from that sidewalk into a city hall and negotiate. And you don't get 100%. Sometimes you get 50%. Even 5%, if that moves something forward, come back and the next day maybe get 5% more. If it's an improvement in people's lives, that's a pretty good day. <laughs> how rare is it days where we go from 0 to 100%? So I think, you know, th those are the... It's not the greatest frustration, but I hope that we can kind of train ourselves civically to learn how to work together, learn how to compromise, learn how to push our goals. But also we have this strange thing, I think Freud called the narcissism of small differences, where we'll find somebody who agrees with us 90% of the time and just obsess about that 10% and turn that person into an enemy over the 10% rather than fight somebody who's only agreeing with us 20% of the time or never agrees with us. It's almost like we're, we'd rather fight our own gone wrong than the exact opposite. And you see that manifest across the country, and certainly it's infected the local level. I wonder with um, something like housing, I, I imagine there are many people who voted for you or vote for politicians like you who want to solve homelessness, who want additional housing, and then when something is proposed in their own neighborhood, they oppose it, right? This this notion of nimbyism. Mm. Was that ever a, a frustration of yours? And how do we solve this notion of seeing the larger good with a voter like that, um, especially because housing has also become so expensive in LA and, yeah. and one of the largest sources of wealth for many families. So people from a self-interested standpoint are clinging to the value of their homes in a way. I think that's right. I mean, I, I only half-jokingly spoke to folks when the most recent mayor's election was happening and they said what are the top three issues facing LA in the future and I said housing housing and housing because right. in some ways it is this prism that refracts everything stuck in traffic the result of bad housing policy frustrated about homelessness the result of bad housing policy don't like pollution the result of bad housing policy not enough jobs are staying here the result of housing policy. So it's this strange thing that almost everything is refracted through. I, though, would like to, you know, kind of counter the idea that LA is full of a bunch of NIMBYs, that that mm -hmm. luckily has not been my experience. First, in a district, I represented the 13th district, roughly kind of the flats of Hollywood to Atwater Village, Glassell Park, so kind of Silver Lake and, and Echo Park and East Hollywood. And we did something very interesting when I was a council member. We started doing these classes called Government 101. Then we developed a Government 102. I realized I didn't really know how government worked when I got there. And I realized most Angelinos have no idea. How does zoning work? What's R2 versus, you know, D3? It sounds like, you know, a droid from Star Wars. And yeah. what are the different, you know, uh, reasons tall buildings are some places and not in others. And we did a Housing 101, an Affordable Housing 101. And then when developers were coming to do things to redevelop parts of the district, which was already the densest populated district in LA, I found something miraculous happen, which is that sometimes the neighborhood was saying, why aren't you going denser? Why aren't you going up higher? We need more housing. And then I think in LA too, this happened when I was mayor. I remember when the expo line was opening up the extension to get to the ocean and we were looking to upzone, which means make taller buildings, more density right around where we're investing you know, hundreds of millions of dollars makes sense that some baristas at the Starbucks you go to might actually be able to walk to the light rail and get to their job in Santa Monica or whatever, instead of being in traffic and they're stuck, you're stuck. And so we proposed some, some upzoning. 
there was the usual kind of neighborhood folks who came out and said, it is terrible already on the west side, no more, like we can't take it. Maybe the classic NIMBY argument, which is rational, by the way, it's just kind of been proven out to be, unfortunately, the wrong way forward. And there was an indigenous, organic, not ginned up by a developer, not turned out by City Hall group of younger Angelinos who came and said the exact opposite. You think this is density? This isn't high enough. I want to stay in this town. I want to have a job. I want to be able to buy something someday. And so I think really Los Angeles City, still around in the region, there's plenty of nimbyism, but LA City is really moving forward. And two mm. proof points, when I became mayor, we were doing about 8,000 units of housing total, new house, housing units in the city a year. At the peak, just before pandemic, and we're roughly at the same place, it was more like 25,000, more than tripling the pace. And I think that was really the result of the pressure that's there and new tools. Like we greatly upzoned and said, you can buy right. That means you don't have to come to City Hall and ask for special permission. You can build taller housing along all of our transit lines in exchange for some of that housing on your dime as a developer going towards extremely low income and low income Angelinos. And then doing what's called you know, accessory dwelling units. That's a fancy name for the uh, what we used to ADU. call granny flats, exactly. <laughs> that So between those two, about 50% of all the new housing is going along transit corridors and almost 25% with ADUs. So that's 75% new housing from two tools we didn't have just 10 years ago when I started. So, you know, I think that Mayor Bass is continuing that, whether it was her or anybody else. I think we also reflect that Angelinos increasingly are saying, give me something in the neighborhood, build housing where there's shops, where there's transit, where there's, you know, entertainment, where there's jobs, because I don't want to be stuck in traffic anymore. Well, let's get to your beginnings, Mayor Garcetti. I'm going to just be going back between Eric and Mayor Garcetti, it. Ambassador Garcetti. It's Dude, not going to be whatever. consistent. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you grew up in LA. You talked about your family history, which I think is really fascinating. Your dad, his descendants coming from Mexico. Your mm-hmm. mom is Jewish, actually. Mm-hmm. And you grew up in the Encino area of L.A., is that right? I did. I grew up uh, right between the Ventura Freeway and Ventura Boulevard. And what about your your schooling before coming to Harvard? I first went to University Elementary School, which is now called the Lab School at UCLA. It was uh, basically a, a free public school at the time. Still, and I say this being a big fan of the education I got at Harvard, but still the best school I've ever gone to in my life because we didn't have grades. We didn't have grade levels. We had a laboratory mix of, no pun intended, a laboratory mix of exact proportions of kind of the racial diversity of Los Angeles. Yeah, then. it's still still the same way, yeah. Yeah, folks who had mental or physical disabilities, but, you know, if somebody had Down syndrome and might be four years older, they're in your class because you're at the same learning level. And if you get imprinted that young with that kind of sense of everybody just being everybody, you never have to learn diversity, you never have to learn inclusion. So that's where I, I went and I was going to go to Walter Reed Junior High, but I also applied to Harvard High, and then suddenly went back and forth and back and forth, and my sister was already at Westlake at the time and took mm-hmm. the plunge, and so glad that I did, and went to, to Harvard High for 7th through 12th, and uh, participated in everything from wrestling to baseball to a lot of theater, um, was a prefect, you know, founded an Amnesty International chapter in the Public Policy Club, kind of just tried everything, and uh, my three best friends in the world still today are part of the fearsome foursome, uh, Evan, Leo, and John, who were my closest friends from kind of, we all did theater together and uh, went on to New York because I wanted to see the other big city in America for college, stayed there for master's, studied in England, uh, UK for about four and a half years, and then came back to LA. That's kind of been the journey of education. So your Harvard experience, I'm curious about, you obviously were involved in many, many things, journalism and the performing arts. I guess first, were there teachers there uh, in particular that had an influence on you that you think about today in terms of public service or who you are as an adult? Yeah, so many. Uh, You know, I learned from Dr. Waterhouse, who I know just recently retired, about government. We actually, anybody who's ever taken AP government can thank me and my classmates because it wasn't offered. And we said, we want an AP government. And he did it after school. You know, I don't think they got paid anymore. And it wasn't even official class, but allowed us to take the AP exam. But he he and others taught me history, you know, Harry Salamandra, Alan Sasaki, who was my mm-hmm. Spanish teacher, was an amazing influence. Uh, Ms. Glickman, who taught me uh, math. 
you know, I, I don't. I, it's difficult to to think of of teachers that didn't have an impact. Uh, Mr. Drew, who was the drama coach at the time, whether it was in kind of student council or whether it was uh, theater, it was oftentimes what they or Mr. Sasaki with photography. It was often what they did outside of school. We also had, of course, chaplains back then, and Father Bridenthal and Father Gill, all teenage boys and girls are on a kind of a spiritual journey to figure out how the world works. And somebody asked me today, did you go to a Jewish school? And I said, no, I actually went to an Episcopalian school. And we went to uh, services in the chapel in which there was no mention of Jesus Christ, but we, we all said God and there were Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Jews. And yes, there were Christians there too, probably some who were even Episcopalian, but it was like the most inviting place to be able to talk about this. One other teacher, speaking of Christianity, former Jesuit who had, by the time he came, uh, left uh, being a Jesuit priest, but um, Dr. Kleins was just a fabulous teacher, both taught a kind of introduction to psychology and also uh, AP art history. You know, Mr. Margolis, the music teacher, like I can still remember them today. Um, yeah. and they all influenced probably the tree of life of my own thinking in each one of these places. I can still hear Mr. Margolis saying, bassists are one step above drummers who are one step above Neanderthals. So I said, okay, I'll play a piano. <laughs> no offense to the drummers and, and the bassists. I don't agree with that anymore, but you know, that was Mr. Margolis. As a former drummer, I agree with your uh, <laughs> with, with Mr. Margold. Um, uh, also, I know that John Amato's retirement, yeah. you also gave a talk and mentioned a piece of education that he gave you that I know is influential <laughs> to you uh, in the long term. Yeah, you know, love Mr. Amato. I was, uh, while I'm still, you know, one of my best friends is still Evan, and I'll give a last name to him because on this podcast, I want him to live in infamy, Evan Arnold. Actually, yes, a parent at Harvard me. Westlake now. Actually. Yes, he's a parent. Exactly. He was chasing yeah. me down the hallway at rugby and he pushed me. I was trying to get away from me, pushed me into a door that was open. I landed right on the jam of the door and kind of bruised my face and it looked like conflict. I got called into John Amato's office. I was like, wasn't my fault. He's like, yeah, sure, kid. I was like, no, it really wasn't. He's like, whatever. But he gave me this great reverse psychology where he said, look, when the dumb kids get in trouble, I'm not worried because, you know, what are they going to do? But when a smart kid like you gets in trouble, that's somebody who can do real damage in this world. And I thought about it. I'm like, oh, he just called me smart. Okay, I'm going to behave better. Not that I was behaving badly, but it did exactly. I probably probably said that to every kid who got in trouble. But it was like this brilliant kind of mental jujitsu of uh, kids getting in trouble where he brought out the inspiration from within rather than telling you you had to act a certain way. So, I mean, it didn't, it didn't work the whole time. Sometimes I, I got in trouble and still ditched class and went to the senior swings and stuff like that. But, you know, I still graduated. And with his Boston accent, it was probably the smart kids. Yeah, he exactly. The smart, the smart kids. kids. <laughs> exactly. John Amato. Um, I'm curious about you being a, in the performing arts and acting back then. You could say, well, why would, how could someone so interested in acting go into politics. Well, that was the mid-80s where literally a professional actor was the president of the United States, uh, Ronald Reagan, whose politics you may not have shared at that era, I'm not mm -hmm. sure. But I wondered if you thought about looking to the president at the time. I love performing arts. I love doing what I'm doing, but I also have, th there's something within my education or within me or within my family history that's sort of calling me to service at the same time. Was any of that going through your head in the mid-80s at Harvard School? I don't know. I mean, I don't think it was crystallized that I wanted to go into politics per se. I was interested in political realm, but I really thought it would be maybe human rights work, international development work. When I was at Harvard, my other very close friend, Josh Geller, took me to Ethiopia with his parents to work in very rural villages on a medical relief mission to help people who were left behind in between the two airlifts of Ethiopian Jews who had lived, you know, for centuries, millennia in Ethiopia. We were the first teenagers to go and I, I traveled and saw elephantiasis and leprosy and we had to kind of sneak in because there was a Marxist regime that didn't want people to know that aid was there. So we had to like sneak medical supplies in and a couple doctors and, you know, medical supplies in our suitcases. And so I kind of always wanted to do that work in the world of the world. I was an exchange student at Harvard with Tamagawa Gakuen, our uh, sister campus in Japan. You know, Public Policy Club, Amnesty International, these things 
continue to flower when I was in college, but I, I certainly didn't connect it to the arts. Those were two separate things. Now I can kind of see how there is some similarity between the two of trying to tell stories and mm-hmm. narrative, which really, it gave me such a good grounding in politics when you realize it's not about policies, it's about stories. Um, mm-hmm. It's not about kind of numbers, it's about people. But no, I don't think elected life was what I thought. And then later on, maybe when I was in college and started to think about, you know, obviously I did student council at Harvard. I ran many times before I got elected until I finally got elected as a prefect by having my friend Evan Arnold tell a joke because we couldn't tell <laughs> jokes uh, for our prefect speeches. And, and the seventh and eighth graders, uh, that was the level of humor, liked it so much they crested me just barely into being a prefect because <laughs> any of the older kids were like, that was pretty stupid. And then I kept doing activism at Columbia, quite a bit of it. So I think it was brewing. But if you'd asked me, I don't think I would have run for office. And if I had, I don't think I would have done the local level. So it was really an interaction with Jackie Goldberg, who I mentioned before, as chief yeah. of staff after she left office. We were doing a fellowship together from the Rockefeller Foundation. We were having a conversation one day. And at the end of it, she's like, you know, you'd be really good in city council. You should run for Jackie's seat. And I'm sure she said it to like 10 people. But my test of like, only do it if you can't not, or my other test, which is, are you going to regret this for the rest of your life not trying? And so I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I thought, am I probably going to regret it? I'm not going to win, but I'll regret not having run. So, all right, let's do that. Check that off and move on in life. And 21 and a half years later, I finally left City Hall. <laughs> wow. By the way, I love that you name-checked Evan Arnold because I know for a fact he is a devoted listener to this podcast, actually. So hello to Evan, who is undoubtedly listening. And Evan, uh, don't forget to to send in money to support this podcast by please <laughs> donating to Harvard Westlake Advancement. And you think the tuition covers it? You're not even close. We need you to That's dig right. deeper. It's about telling the story. It's about telling the story, Mary Garcetti. (laughs) It's not about the numbers. Um, So after Harvard School, you you go to Columbia, you become a Rhodes Scholar, you go to Oxford. I wonder, uh, as we go through those years, were there professors, educators at either stop that also had an impact on you, uh, influenced you in terms of teaching you about civic life, about international affairs, et cetera? Absolutely. I mean, at Columbia, I saw this other new city, which was amazing and learning, yeah. building on AP art history and taking Columbia University. By the way, the year I went, we had a huge class, I think 5% of the graduating class at Harvard Westlake, or maybe even higher at Harvard, excuse me, high school at the time, went to Columbia uh, my year. And we'd only usually had one or two. It was kind of like this mad rush on this place. And mm. it was great to to know people that were there. But to learn art history and to have the Met and MoMA, to get involved in international relations and to be there at the headquarters of the UN and human rights organizations, it was an amazing city that taught me. But then I got to take professors like Charles Hamilton, where I learned American government, you know, the co-authors of Black Power, Carlton Long, who was a Rhodes Scholar who got me to apply, who I was TA for and who was teaching a class on the First Amendment and defending Two Live Crew, a rap group that was being... Sure. had their case go to the Supreme Court. Judith Russell, who I'm still in touch with, who had a year-long kind of anti-poverty seminar. And people like William DeBerry, who taught uh, what was then called Oriental Humanities, now Asian Humanities, which came down to a single test after an entire year of reading everything from Morocco to Japan, Middle East to the South Asia here in India to uh, China and Japan and got a single oral exam at the end of the year that your whole grade wrote on. But now when I'm here in India, I've read all the Indian classics because of that course that was so influential. And then when I did my master's degree, I got to stay at Columbia at the School of International Affairs where Lewis Hankin, one of the co-authors of things, um, you know, like the main covenants that guide human rights, the international covenants on economic, social, cultural rights. He and Oscar Schachter were the actual authors of these things. And they're no longer with us, but um, just... I felt like I was learning from the the founding fathers of the UN what human rights were all about. I also learned a lot from people who I got to meet later. When I was at Oxford, I started going to to Ethiopia to do field work. And that came on the heels of two summers I spent in Burma as part of my master's degree, where I was in the jungles of Burma, living with kind of the rebels that lived in that area at the time after a crackdown on democracy and students who had been shot in the streets just trying to have free elections. And so I met people like those in in Burma who were my teachers who were fighting literally with 
guns at their heads. And in Ethiopia, a woman in particular named Boge Gebre, who um, I started doing work with while I was living in Eritrea and Ethiopia, uh, to stand up a woman's organization that was trying to eradicate the practice of cutting of girls when they went through a, a ceremony to become women. And she died during the pandemic, but she's probably the single greatest mentor I've ever had, just somebody with courage, um, wow. somebody who inspired me and somebody who was able to in the place she came back to the U.S., but then returned to Ethiopia and basically got this centuries-long custom completely abolished and transformed into a different girl to womanhood ceremony that takes place in soccer stadiums without the brutality of that past. And instead, she's like liberated a whole generation of women in Ethiopia. You know, it strikes me, we talked a little bit about being in one's car and, and kind of being isolated from even people down the street, people in your city. It strikes me the amount of international travel that you've done and the exposure you've had, not just other people in Los Angeles, but other people throughout the world. How important do you feel like that is for young students, young Harvard-Westlake students, people in general to experience cultures outside of our own, especially those who, who may need our help? You know, I was talking today to a Marine sergeant who just reported for duty here with a detachment. All of our embassies and consulates around the world are guarded by United States Marines. A young man from New Jersey who was telling me his story and basically said the best thing he ever did was join the Marines and get to see the world. The old cliche, but he had just come from Mongolia, lived in Japan, and now he had arrived in India. I think the most important thing you can do above what school you go to, what job you think you want is to actually get out there into the world. Uh, it gives you the perspective on everything you have and don't have. It gives you an ability to really see what you're made of, especially in countries where they don't speak English or speak much English. How do you survive? All the things you kind of take for granted suddenly get called into question in both a personal, kind of national, and even global way. And I think it inspires us to be better and much more connected at a time when tribalism is so strong. Yeah. It cuts through that. You know, as my parents did with me, I would say, if you're a parent listening to this, give your kids travel. And by that, I don't mean a vacation at a resort in Baja. <laughs> I mean, true travel, which is where you have to explore. You're not just a tourist. It's fine to do a couple of touristy things, but 99.99% of the world isn't touched by tourists. It's people live in, in those in-between spaces and places. And if you can find them, you know, I was in area here called Gujarat, a state of Gujarat, and the capital's Ahmedabad. I've been getting into cricket here, um, hmm. kind of pursuing cricket diplomacy, and people are nuts about cricket. So I went to the final match of the Indian League called the IPL, and it was raining and pouring. There's a stadium of 130,000 people. And you can't take other stadiums and convert them to cricket because they're basically round. Uh, so it's a unique thing in the world. And we couldn't get to the stadium because it was raining. So let's grab some dinner. And of course, as the ambassador, everybody's saying, oh, Mr. Ambassador, here's a nice fancy hotel and a great restaurant. And I'm like, let's just Google something and find a hole in the wall. And suddenly, you know, with a motorcade, because the Indian government is incredible and will make sure that I'm secure wherever I am, uh, we pull up in the rain in this roundabout and a woman who I saw on online, it has maybe three square feet in the front of her husband's thread store. And her daughter just graduated from college, does the social media. And when we said, do you have a table? She's like, I'll get one. And suddenly we were eating and talking to them about their story. And it was a hundred times better than going maybe to one of the big sites and really understanding what the world is all about. And talking to this young woman about maybe how she could study in the United States. And the mother was so proud. She wouldn't let me pay for it no matter what, because she said this was like the greatest honor she had had. And the father was all proud. These are the moments that you get when you travel and when you engage with the world. So I would tell people first travel and then second, consider living abroad uh, for a period of your life. Uh, it's the best thing you can do, especially when you're young, to kind of set your, your perspectives. Well, I'm going to take a slight detour to the conversation now because kind of post-college, you mentioned that your father became district attorney mm -hmm. of LA. Uh, this is kind of a, a personal story. When my wife and I first moved in together, we moved into an apartment on the 800 block of Bundy <laughs> in Brentwood, 
which happened to be, you're nodding, the same block as the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman many years earlier. And I, of course, first heard the name Garcetti, maybe many folks did in the mid-90s because your dad was district attorney during that era. So I'm curious, I know you were out of college at the time when this happened, so you weren't at Harvard School, weren't in LA necessarily. Can you talk about any reflections from that time and watching your father sort of deal with the media scrutiny, deal with this massive news story and him being kind of somewhat at the center of it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, it was a crazy time. I mean, I learned all sorts of lessons and it was the first time like mass media descended on something like this where celebrity and and every outlet and cable TV and 24-hour coverage and live courtroom cameras, like all this stuff just like all collided at the same time. I mean, I learned a few lessons. One is that your public image is not necessarily what you think it is, and it's not who you are privately. So you have to tend Mm. to that, especially if you're in public life. I mean, my dad had to, he was the prosecutor, say, you know, turn yourself in, Mr. Simpson. And everybody's like, oh, your dad's a hard ass, isn't he? And I'm like, no, he's like the most loving, like hugging, like generous, um, you know, human being. But they didn't see that. They didn't grow up with him. They didn't know him as dad. They knew him from like one minute where you're like, do something right. And, and, uh, I always learned that you have to kind of humanize yourself, take these moments, you know, even this, an interview like this, like show people your heart, explain a little bit of who you are. Don't just assume that they know, because the weird thing that happens with celebrities, certainly with people in political life is everybody thinks they know them with politicians. Mm. It's often they know them good or bad. And with celebrities, we all feel like we know them when we don't like none of us have actually spent like hours with top celebrities or elected officials? Do we actually know who these people are like? We get senses of them, but you have to bring that to them. Like the most intimate part of my time as mayor was doing a hundred on the dot, I think it was a hundred different nightly addresses during the pandemic, you know, for an hour in English, another half hour in Spanish. And it was like this moment of being in people's living rooms. And I didn't realize the impact it had till, as I shared earlier, people started to come up to me and say, like, even who don't live in the city of LA, because it's such a huge metro region, somebody from Riverside or Long Beach would say, like, thank you. Like, this was my one source of information. Or just thank you for remembering somebody who died or like telling the story of what we could do to not just be passive, but be active in the midst of this horrible time. So, you know, I learned that lesson from my dad and watching that circus that was around the OJ trial. I also was, I was in Oxford, luckily, so I was in the UK for most of it, but I Mm -hmm. came back early to work on Kathleen Brown's campaign for governor, Jerry Brown's sister. It was the first campaign that I kind of worked on, except my father's, obviously, but that's as a volunteer. And I learned a lot at that moment. This was the mid-90s when Pete Wilson was kind of going after what he called legal immigrants and the death penalty and kind kind of realized that it's always easier to motivate people out of fear than out of hope. And I kind of tried to, I made myself a promise that I would try to understand where that fear comes from, but try to channel it to hope if I'm ever going to be in this realm. It takes a lot more work to bring people and to sustain hope than it does to feed and continue to feed fear. But, you know, whether it's the most perverse manifestations of nationalism that we've seen in the world, whether it's now sometimes like turning Americans against Americans, when you used to at least look outward for the enemy and be one nation under God, you know, indivisible. We have this thing where we've lost hope, where people's trust in institutions is all underwater besides maybe, maybe the military just over 50%, but big business, religion, journalism, politicians, Supreme Court, like everybody has less than 50% trust in a democracy, essentially about ourselves, because a democracy at some level does reflect us whether you want to admit it or not. You know, that was the beginning of some of the chaos that we're experiencing now. Social media wasn't with us, internet wasn't hard in place, but it's only accelerated. Even at the same time as it's accelerated our tools to combat that, to connect with each other. And so it's not all just bad news. And I've seen some immensely hopeful moments and some incredible evolutions since then too. But it was a crazy time. And remember, it was back to back with unrest in in 92. Rodney King, Rodney L.A. riots. King, mm-hmm. L.A. riots, uh, civil uprising, 94, the earthquake, and O.J. So like the, the early 90s was just this crazy moment in L.A. when the rest of the country said, oh, it's definitely going to be an earthquake that's going to break this place off and it's going to go into the ocean and good riddance. <laughs> but somehow <laughs> we made it through. 
a good reminder in, in what's another kind of tougher moment for LA now that we always do find a way through, but we don't do it alone. It has to be all of us. Do you see in hindsight, I mean, there's an incredible documentary that's been produced about the kind of OJ murder and the trial. And do you see in hindsight how the jury came to the conclusion it did, given your understanding of the kind of the racial dynamics in Los Angeles that were present then, that some of which still persists? My dad, who's really an optimistic human being, and I remember calling him from England just before the verdict was going to come down. He's like, I think we, we got this. I think it's going to be a conviction. Yeah. Later on told the story of the only person who was telling him that it wasn't going to be was former President Jimmy Carter, who in hmm. some conversation early on in this said, Gil, there's going to be acquittal. Because what you have to understand is the number of times there's been injustice brought falsely, the Mattills of the world and, the, right. and everything else to the African-American community, that this is going to be a moment of trying to rebalance. Whether it's right or wrong, whether it's based in fact or not, it's going to be an attempt by many who have not seen the justice system work, kind of reject that the justice system should go the way you think it's going to be. And it was a very, my dad said it was a really a wake-up call that, that sometimes things are about what they're about, and sometimes they're about bigger things. And you can understand it even if you don't agree with it. I think as people look back, I don't think that there is much ambiguity or doubt about guilt, but you never know what's going to happen. And you never know what a group of people are going to do to either send a message or to give context. And you can't just count on facts. We know that even more now is that people have feelings as much as they have facts. And now we have, unfortunately, things that feed on feelings and present them as facts, untruths about science. But I think that was one of the takeaways for sure. Do you feel like, as mayor, the, the diversity within your background helped you to understand at a deeper level some of the differences in this city around race, around religion, around language? A hundred percent. I mean, people have always said, well, aren't you Italian? And I remember <laughs> walking around Harvard High School and people would tell me Jewish jokes, like they'd tell me Beaner jokes, and they wouldn't know that here was a Mexican-American or a Jew you know, as some stupid kid was walking up the stairs on the campus, you know, as kids do, telling me a racist joke. And, you know, I probably didn't know what to do besides laugh. And then I'd get home and be like, what the heck? Um, I think there was one maybe other Latino in my class. There was, you know, I'd, I'd go to my grandparents' house where they speak Spanish and they lived in Van Nuys and have menudo on the weekends. And, you know, it was something that for a long time, and I'm really glad that there's a focus on it now, it was like we had so few Latinos for a city that's 50% Latino. I think it give, helps give you the lens of pointing out who's missing, what voices aren't being heard in all the places you've been and all the places you touch. But it also gives you a fluency. It makes you, I gave a speech at the graduation of a college when I was mayor about being a border crosser. And it was a provocative speech, but I'm kind of like, you have to know how to navigate borders in life. You have to mm -hmm. be comfortable navigating borders. We have so few people that are interpreters, bridge builders, translators these days. There's people who know X or they know Y. And people can't get X and Y to connect or understand each other or see each other. But I think if you grow up, you know, I wasn't visually hybrid because, you know, people look at me and say, okay, you're pretty light-skinned, like... American dude, and I, I've got you figured out, you know, for somebody like a Kamala Harris or a Barack Obama, like people who I've known over the years, like it's visually brings with it even more on top of the cultural dualism. But I think conversations I've had with both of them and many other people is you kind of, what am I? I'm both. Like, I'm very comfortable. I joke, I'm a Jutino, you know, kosher burrito, whatever. But I'm, it's like, I don't have to choose. Like, wh who of us do have to choose between the ripples of identity that we have. We're sometimes a parent and sometimes a professor and sometimes a brother or a sister. And sometimes we're, you know, we're all an ambassador and sometimes a mayor. <laughs> exactly. Or as you started, I'm an ambassador mayor, a mayor ambassador. I don't know. Um, but I'm still Maya's daddy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, well, I have a few get to know you questions just to end up. Sure. Uh, Mayor Garcetti, because I know uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative of your time. They relate to Los Angeles, where you were mayor for the last 10 years. We are known for our movies, for our food, and for our climate. So I'm going to ask you three quick questions and then one last one. What is Ambassador Garcetti's favorite movie? 
oh, that's easy. I, I had to pick that when I became mayor and my staff was horrified because we had to do a screening of it. Uh, airplane. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Still holds up. Classic. <laughs> okay. What is your favorite meal in LA? It could be a restaurant. It could be something you guys made at home. Um, you know, if it's not a, a kind of probably a bowl of, of menudo at a Mexican restaurant, I got a few. The place I like these days even though I'm living now here in Delhi, that I'd recommend everybody, is Verse. It's in Toluca Lake. It looks like nothing on the outside, and it's like this amazing, credible supper club with music uh, that a hmm. brilliant Grammy Award-winning sound engineer and a brilliant chef, both of them who grew up here in L.A., children of immigrants, one who went to Hollywood High, one who went to the music program at Hamilton High, started and there's live music every night you don't know what it's going to be it could be kamasi washington who shows up it could be somebody from american idol who shows up but it's designed as a sound studio so even as the music is playing you can hear and the food is out of this world so mm. and what's the cuisine it's a kind of i would say latin and asian inspired california like you know it's, it. it's you know you might find something that's a takeoff on taco or ceviche or incredible pasta or something with an Asian twist. It's amazing food. It's the best bar. It's the greatest atmosphere. And there's music. Like how often do you get live music in LA while you're eating? Yeah. Good date night, anniversary. What's your favorite place in LA? I know you've mentioned Griffith Park a few times, being on hikes and running into constituents. Is there a place in LA that you love? I do love the hills of LA, definitely Griffith Park, which was kind of my happy place that going on a hike at sunset up to uh, Mount Hollywood. But I'd also say um, the LA River, which is what I grew up next to in Encino. Uh, I used to walk there with my dad. People forget a river runs through it here. And to me, it's a, it's kind of why the city exists. It's why downtown is inland. It's why life started here and somehow sustained here and even grew here. But I would say those are the two places when you're getting away from the city. If you're getting into the city, I just it's a huge place, but I'd say the valley. I'm, I'm puro valle. Even though I lived a year on the west side when my parents moved there my senior year, nothing against it. I'm a valley guy. All right, last question. You are a parent, as you've mentioned. You're a dad. Mm-hmm. I am the parent of two young daughters. I have a four-and-a-half-year-old and a, a two-year-old. Wow. And so my last question to uh, every guest is for parenting advice. I know one you kind of gave early on, which is to have my daughters travel, which I am taking to heart. What's the advice you would give me? You've been the the dad of a daughter. You are the dad of a daughter. What's your advice to me trying to raise two two little girls here in LA? So I'm dad of an 11-year-old daughter and my wife, Amy, who we haven't talked about, who deserves like an hour herself. She's incredible. um, Asked if I would consider being a foster parent. And I said, absolutely. And we've had the good fortune of being foster parents for almost a decade of many, many children. And you learn different lessons in those different roles, but it's the same thing. Parenting is the same. I think your role is not to make them happy, but it's two things. It's to show them what love looks like and to let them know that mental health is not about always being in the best mood, but when you're not in the best mood, being okay and figuring out a way to deal with that. If you give them those two gifts, plus I already said, let them travel, <laughs> send them someplace else. You're going to have good kids um, who can calibrate themselves, who can calibrate this world, and who can like lead with love inside and throughout their lives. And to the mental health point, so do you mean that sort of all of us face stresses in our mm-hmm. personal lives and our work lives to as best we can learn how to manage those when we come home, when we interact with our kids? Is that part of what you're trying to say? No, I, I mean that too, but I was more yeah. teach your kids how to deal with their feelings, talk about ah. them, and mm-hmm. to know like being upset is fine. Being yeah. angry, jealous, being sad, these things are they're fine. Learn the tools to be okay with dealing with those moments as a child, because you'll have them as an adult, rather than trying to like, I think we have a lot of, we have this cult of happiness, like you see it on Instagram and people are always supposed to be at their best and always supposed to be at happy. Let them know that like, that's not who we are as human beings and true mental health isn't being happy more often. It's about yeah. being able to just deal with the times we're not happy and to know that you have the tools and that you'll get through it. Uh, Eric Garcetti, thank you so much (laughs) for joining the supporting cast all the way over from India and taking the time. It's nighttime where you are, morning where I am, to spend time with the supporting cast. We really appreciate it. 
Thank you, Eli. It's been a treat. I'm going to go to sleep and say hey to LA for me. All right, will do. Okay. Thanks. Thanks.